Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not in a Huff. Thanks so much for joining me. As always, really appreciate it. This week, I'm interviewing Becca Barnett. Now, I found her in a very interesting way. We'll get to that in the interview. I don't want to spoil it, but she is a creative. I think that's the best way to describe her. She owns a company called Sisal Creative. She makes all kinds of amazing things. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the awesome things she makes. We're going to focus a little bit on taxidermy because she went to taxidermy school. She does a lot of really cool stuff there. Now, she'll even mention it, but she's not the person that you're going to take your your deer that you just went on a hunt for and, and mount. She is more into like the restoration, going into the museums and restoring old taxidermy pieces, you know, restoring a, a piece of an extinct species, stuff like that. So that's that's what she does in taxidermy. But it's still such a fascinating world that I knew absolutely nothing about before we uh, before we begin talking, there's just so much more to it and how to make sure you know, what what makes good taxidermy versus what makes it bad. We we don't necessarily always know what makes it good, but we certainly know what makes it bad. You you see all those memes of the crazy terrible stuffed cat or something like that. Uh, she's going to talk about that. I think it's really interesting the things she says and just how much you have to know the anatomy of of all these animals to know what they they look like what their muscles look like when they're moving uh, in order to you know to, to make the taxidermy look look good so we're going to talk about that uh, that's not all we're going to talk about i actually found her from the show that she was on called making it it was a show on nbc for a few years it's no longer on now but it had amy poehler and nick offerman on it so it, it was definitely had some some huge uh huge co-hosts they were of course famous for being well they're famous for lots of things but they're actors comedians that were on parks and recreation together but this show was all about bringing creatives together and making crafts and and when i say crafts it's not just you know finger painting and popsicle sticks it's you know huge display pieces becca actually in the first week the what the week that she she won um the challenge she made a a collapsible doll so it just it was really really fascinating i i told you i wasn't going to tell you how i found this show i didn't watch it on nbc when it was on so there's the there's the spoiler there but i found it in a funny funny way so we're going to talk about just being on that show being on a you know, a competitive reality show that uh, is kind of different than any other ones, a competitive reality show about craft making. So I, I really enjoyed speaking with Becca. I think you'll learn that she has a lot to say and she's just such a joy to speak with. So here is Becca Barnett. I'm here today with Becca Barnett. Miss Barnett, how are you? I'm doing great, Jackson. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Tall task right out the gate, but just introduce yourself. Oh, hey, everybody. I'm Becca Barnett. Um, I am uh, an artist uh, out of Charleston, South Carolina. Um, I own Sisal Creative. Uh, it's been 10 years now since I started my business, which is pretty cool. And I make custom site-specific art installations for people who love what they do and want things that are beautiful to exist in their space. 
<laughs> I love that. And I mean, you, you've done so much in the creative world. That's why it's so important just to kind of ask you how, I guess you identify yourself out there in that world, because I mean, there's just, there's just so much to it. You, you've, I think you've mastered kind of being concise about it, which I, I like, but uh, we talked about this before we started recording. I, it, it's no uh, keep the secrets there, but you're ta- you're talking to me sitting on the floor with the f- camera on the bed and the reasoning is kind of funny. So talk about why uh, why you're talking to me on the floor. Yeah. So first of all, I tried to find a place in my room where I was like, maybe it won't involve the bed because that feels a little weird. You know, it's like, hey, Jackson, here's my bedroom. But um, I'm upstairs. Uh, my house is 1,700 square feet. And I am upstairs in my bedroom because I am trying to get as far away from as possible from the three dogs that occupy my house. Um, yeah. We have a tiny uh, chihuahua fluffy thing that looks like it's a hot dog that rolled on the floor of a barbershop. Her name's Rumi. She's precious. Right. Um, we've got a French bulldog, Pagoda, who's um, an agent of chaos. And then we have uh, the world's best dog that's uh, too good for this uh, planet named Gus. And he's a pit bull. And they are um, loud and they make lethal farts and um, really loud barks. So I am trying to be as, you know, least distracted as I can possibly be from uh, the smells, sights and sounds of the animals that I love the most in the world. <laughs> so all, all good reasons. Who's the, I guess, who's the smelliest? I would assume it's, it's, Ooh, it's the, the French Bulldog. It's Is the it? French Bulldog. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, there's, there's scientific reasons behind that, of course. That brassicephalic yeah, nose, he all he does is just inhale air all the time. But they're also not like technically supposed to be alive. Like they couldn't breed without human intervention, which yeah. I mean, honestly, I've rescued dogs my whole life and I've I've done a lot of fostering and I'm obsessed with bull terriers, like the target mm. dog. Yeah, I've had a couple of those. They're amazing. But um they come with like a bunch of problems. They're lemons, you know, they come out the gate and um, I rescued my pit bull. I flew to Indiana to get him and I drove 12 hours to get him because I fell in love with him on pet finder by not accident, mm. like by accidentally clicking, you know, United States instead of 50 miles away. Mm. Um, and I bought the Frenchie, uh, during COVID, my kid was eight months old and the Frenchie was eight weeks old. And I was mm. like, I got all the time in the world. I could train a Frenchie and raise a kid yeah. and my pit bull will teach him everything. And I'm not bringing in a dog that has like baggage that could bite my kid's face off. This is a great idea. And it turns out as much as I love him, he is legitimately like, I think he is the spawn of like, um, I don't know. He's like, uh, he's like if a hot dog Well, no, let me hold on. I'm going to get this right. Pagoda <laughs> is like um, a loaf of bread and um, just like Tasmanian devil had a baby basically. Um <laughs> I think I might've already said agent of chaos, but that's kind of his tagline. You know, he's just, he's here to assume that everything in the world is for him. And I love him dearly, but like he's a handful for sure. Yeah. Frenchies are not all they're cracked out to be like people say. (laughs) I I like, I love it. Well, believe it or not, we didn't come on here to talk just about the dog. So let's, let's, (laughs) let's talk, (laughs) let's talk about uh, kind of the, the very beginning of your i guess your creativeness is it something that you know as a kid you were being creative and and creating all these type of things is it something you learned later i want to talk about kind of the the start for you honestly it's a good segue because i saw animals for me Hmm. my whole life like everything i mean i love art and it, it definitely factors in but it started with just a love and appreciation and obsession with everything animal Hmm. um 
probably like Bambi or something. I don't know. It's just like, you know, I think from a very young age, just anything kind of like hard to understand, but also just very natural and very just like true to itself. And um, I don't know, just nature in general. I'm just obsessed with uh, anything that, you know, there's no, there's no stigma. There's no ties. There's no, um, they don't hurt your feelings. Like the true, it's just true love, you know? And so I think that, um, for me, just like loving animals so much. I had stuffed animals. I wanted to make clothes for them. I ended up uh, making stuffed animals. I turned my kids, uh, sorry, I turned my parents' basement as a kid into like a huge diorama of a jungle. Um, my mom and dad let me go wild and I painted the walls and I made like elephant topiaries and I made like a fake waterfall out of cut up shower curtains. And like, I made like rabbit skins to hang out of like um, fake like I don't know I'm sounding a little um bit like I need to be institutionalized at this point but um yeah anyway just like loved loved art from day one never wanted to do anything else I used to sit in the t-ball field and pick flowers like I can't do anything but art it's just what I do <laughs> I I love to hear that and I love that your your parents kind of embraced that and let you I guess be be what you wanted to be I think a lot of parents definitely in today's world the art is kind of I don't want to say going away, but schools are not making it as important as it should be. And that's, that's a huge issue that obviously we could talk, you know, the entire time about, but mm -hmm. I like that. Uh, I like that they, they embraced your passions. You kind of gave us a good segue into, into another thing. And you talked about having these fake rabbit skins. The next thing <laughs> that you, that you went into is taxidermy you actually went to taxidermy school I first I, I want to know what taxidermy school what that's all about um <laughs> you know, what that entails how people get into taxidermy school talk a little bit about that Ooh, uh I did go to taxidermy school I went to the um Missouri Taxidermy Institute in 2009 um but I think how I got there I'll try to sum it up quickly but um I studied illustration at RISD um which is the Rhode Island School of Design um, and the reason I chose illustration is because um, my parents did support me, but there was a little reluctancy to let me go to art school because I think the stigma around just like becoming a starving artist is so, you know, nailed into the generation before us. And with a lot of people, it still is. And it is hard to make a living as an artist. And I did know that was going to be a challenge and I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I kind of figured, you know, majoring in painting or glass blowing that was very either really broad or really niche and illustration kind of scratched all of my itches for like creating a career and being trained to create art that is for a specific client. So everything that we were challenged to do at college was, um, you know, essentially, you know, who's your client? What are they like? What is their budget? What are their, what are their preferred um, end goals and deliverables? And so then we were able to create art that like, uh, you know, featured ourselves and celebrated our own styles, but also met all the criteria of the client. So I started making um, every assignment that I could out of like little sculptures and I was making puppets and I was using fake animal parts and feathers and any kind of animal skins I could get my hands on. And um, I started kind of going down this natural history route and at the same time being obsessed with just like anything old. And, and enigmatic and kind of elusive and things that were breaking and falling apart and things I wanted to preserve or reappropriate into art. So I was kind of just like caught up in this whole 
I love vintage stuff. I love preservation. I love animals. I love taxidermy. And then my teacher was like, you should go to taxidermy school. Um, so at RISD, we have a kind of winter session, like a J session, like a short semester where you can kind of do anything, but you're supposed to take a class in another department. I got um, permission to do an independent study. And I went to um, Missouri for six weeks and it was in the middle of the Ozarks. Uh, it was crazy. But I learned how to do um, every type of mount that you would need to learn. Uh, and then just kind of like came back to RISD and started using it where I could. I repaired um, mounts in their natural history collection and just kept kept doing it. Mm. I want to I dig a little bit more into taxidermy here in a second. But something that you said that I feel like is, and, and I really, I, I say this not really knowing, so please do correct me, but I feel like those who become successful when they come out of out of art school because you know what you said is kind of a a stereotype the starving artist that you don't really you know I, i'm in the education field so you know people talk about how you know the only way people get jobs after art school is to go get a master's degree and then teach other people art you know it's that kind of mm -hmm. thing that, it's that stereotype but i feel like the people that are successful is exactly what you said and exactly what they were teaching you that you create your art based off of who your clients are, what your clients want, that kind of thing. And the example that I have with that is I have a, uh, a good friend who got a, a painting degree. She, you know, she's an amazing painter and she's pretty successful at it really. Um, you know, because she has quite a few people that buy her, her work, but the things that she's struggling with. And the thing that I try to explain is you do have to, you know, whether it's take commissions or listen to what other people want, that's what she struggles. She's like, I am my own creative person. If people like what I paint, then they'll buy it. If they don't, then I don't care. Well, that's a kind of a way that you're not going to sell very many paintings. So I feel like that's the difference where obviously you need to be creative and you need to have that, you know, creative passion, but you do have to kind of cater things a little bit towards your, your clientele. What do, what do you think about that? Well, I think that you're not wrong. Um, because I like on the flip side of that, as someone that makes things specifically for other people, which coincidentally kind of gives me no time to make anything for myself, you know, it's important to play. And I used to play a lot when I had jobs that weren't so design heavy and art heavy. But I think you got to like find what works for you. And I think you do have to stay true to yourself. Like I find myself, um, now, after 10 years of doing Sisal Creative, like, kind of thinking, does this job serve, or not serve, does this job align with my, like, style and values and what I want to make? And I've learned that you never show anybody, like, you never show a client a design that you're not excited to make because they'll pick it every single time. Honestly, it's like, grass is always greener, but I kind of envy her for, like, just making stuff for her. Like that sounds really fun. When I do that, it feels completely different than making things with Sisal. But at the same time, it, it still kind of gives me all of the same uh, warm fuzzies and it uh, satisfies my creative urge. At the, does that kind of make sense? I don't know. I don't think there's one way or the other that's right. Like maybe, I mean, being a business owner is extremely difficult and wearing all the hats. There have been times throughout the years where I've had amazing help and I haven't had to wear all the hats. And um, I'm at a current place where I don't have to wear all of them, um, but we're kind of just starting to work together. Um, my amazing coworker, Shelby, but like 
I'm still wearing a lot of them. And it's just like, you know, yeah, I want to make art. I don't want to do invoices, but I have to. I think the only reason I'm so obsessed, well, now it's just working, but before I was so obsessed with making it work because yeah, my whole life I was told you're not going to be able to make it work financially. And my parents did support me, but they really, really were reluctant to just say, okay, just like just an artist. So I think I just kind of was like, I'll show them. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. And also, you know, the, the flip that you talked about how you, you know, you go back to doing things for yourself. I think that's always important, but it, there's a lot to be said for, you know, what you, what you said is the whole, I'll show them mentality because, <laughs> you know, I've talked to hundreds of people now and a lot of amazing things people do starts out with them saying, I'm just needed to prove somebody wrong. So I think that's right? a, that's a huge thing. I want to get back to, uh, taxidermy oh of course (laughs) just for just for a a moment and that is you know you know there's so many memes out there you know bad taxidermy (laughs) and stuff taxidermy is weird and there's a lot of weird memes out there about it (laughs) right and i feel like a lot of people don't know you know the ins and outs of taxidermy most people don't but you know when you see bad taxidermy so what uh, i mean what what makes good taxidermy and what makes it meme worthy Oh, that's a great question. Because like you said, there's this, uh, well, it's kind of fading out, but there was this whole boom of like, yeah, there's all these books published, crap taxidermy, crappy taxidermy, or like regretsy, or, you know, like all of these like funny, like people love to make fun of bad stuff. Um, What makes good taxidermy? Let's see. I think if you look at it as a non-taxidermist or a non-artist and you are like, wow, that looks real. That looks really good. Like that's good enough. But I personally am a snob. It's like if you're a coffee roaster or or a sommelier, like you're a snob. You know, I'm just like in general with wine. Like you're not going to drink like box wine if you're a sommelier because you're going to be like this is gross. I don't know. You can look at a lot of things without you know shattering anyone's glass or ruining the experience of taxidermy for them. Um, there are many different types of preservation techniques, and a lot of them work short term very well, and a lot of them work better long term. And then there's like on a whole nother even like level, there's the study of anatomy. Do you know what a fox looks like on the inside? Do you know its muscular structure? Do you know how it moves? Do you know how its ears move when its eyes look a certain way? And you study that by like watching videos of them or reading books and like seeing picture books or Googling or whatever. And no animal is going to put its ears back and have its eyes like closed. So you just have to kind of study the way they move in, in life. And then find a position that works, that kind of trans translates into a still moment. And I think that for me is what captivates me the most about taxidermy is like not playing God because that's like so egotistical and dumb. Like that's way too hyperbolic, but like being able to recreate a moment in time and to give an animal another chance to kind of like shine or exist or bring joy or education to something like that's. I don't know. It's just like, it's fascinating to me. I feel like I'll never get it right. I'll never have my mind around it. And I like things that give me a challenge. <laughs> yeah. That wouldn't be even something I'd think about, but obviously you have to know what they naturally look like, you know, alive before you're going to make them look very good. Not so. Yeah, I exactly. Mean, there's a lot more to it. It sounds like. So what, you know, I guess, does your taxidermy, has it transcended all kinds of things? Or are you doing, you know, everything from squirrels to something large well so currently um my company focuses a lot more on taxidermy repair for museums Mm -hmm. 
Um, and my uh, soul gets a lot of uh, recharging through that because I try really, really hard. Um, I'm not against hunting and I'm not anti um, taxidermy at all. Obviously I make it, but I don't take jobs where people are like, Hey, I shot a giraffe. Can you mount it for me? And it's kind of an ethical thing, kind of a logistics thing. My studio is a thousand square feet with like 10 foot ceilings. So no, I can't do a giraffe for you. It's just kind of more like, what can I personally take on and still pursue this business that looks like not just taxidermy? And so for me, taxidermy jobs have turned into repair jobs quite a bit. There's an emotional side to repair. Like, oh, this is my grandfather's fish. There's a green, like eco-friendly side to repair. There's an honoring the animal side to repair. And there's an education side. And I think that the for me, the museum repair is so rewarding um, to give that mount that is a potentially extinct or threatened species, especially um, another chance to teach people and for people to be close to it. Uh, I was able to um, repair a passenger pigeon and an ivory-billed woodpecker and a Carolina parakeet uh, when we renovated the uh, Natural History Gallery at the Charleston Museum because I did all the taxidermy repair for that as well as the design. But the taxidermy repair for that was so rewarding. Everything was bleached out and disgusting and bug, rid bug riddled. And um, I got to bring them all back to life. That's a bad phrase because they're not alive. But uh, it was just such an honor to be so close to all of those animals and to be able to kind of you know, just give them another chance instead of just ending up in the trash. Yeah, no, that had to be, that had to be impactful and powerful for sure. So when it comes to this taxidermy, you know, you, we, we talked about bad taxidermy and I'm sure museums don't have like the truly, truly bad ones, but obviously some of the, you know, things have came a long way with a lot of things. So, you know, something that was done a hundred years ago may not be as, you know, with the same techniques and as good. So the question I would have is, with taxidermy, is it possible to take a you know something that was done really bad and change it to make it good, or is it just kind of making it as good as it can be? And there's not really anything you can't really change it once it's been done. If that makes sense. Okay. Yes and no. Short answer. Let's say you have a house and it's like rotting. There's so much you can do to make it better, but at a certain point, it's a teardown. And I have a bobcat from the 20s, and it's derpy as all get out like it's just it literally has walleyes and its lips are cracking and peeling and there's no fixing that there's no going back from that but if you know repair really well you're fighting against the elements you're fighting against like desiccation which is just drying out and turning to, into a potato chip essentially and you're fighting against um bad tanning techniques of uh, which i could talk about tanning techniques for like way too long there's so many cool facts about tanning but um you can fix a lot of stuff. And there have been mounts where I've literally taken the heads off of them and found like a new bobcat and like made a new head for it. There is some rehydrating that can happen potentially. And if holes are missing, like I repaired a tiger rug once with lots of holes in it and you don't get tiger skin anymore. So I found a, um, I found goat skin and hair, like fur on the goat. It was very, very similar in texture and the, the way the fur was laying. So I made a template for all the holes in the tiger. I cut out all the rotted stuff. I got the goat fur and I like made it exactly lay the same way. And I punched the templates and I made all the goat fur uh, patches and I hand dyed them and hand airbrushed them and then wove them in and backed them and glued them and then sprayed them to match the stripes. And you can't 
find the holes. Thank you very much. Mic drop. But yes, yeah, so yes and no, awesome. there are ways to fix stuff. And there, there are things that I come my way that I'm like, baby girl, you in danger. Yeah. You got to go. <laughs> or you just got to be loved the way you are. Because like, you know, no fix it. You. <laughs> I, I like that. I think that's, that's really funny. I want you now just to kind of talk about size or creative as a as a whole this is could very well be your opportunity to go off into more taxidermy more tanning techniques if you want but this is your opportunity <laughs> to talk about uh size or creative as a whole and i hope i'm saying it right i think i am yeah sizel um quick note on the name my father's great-grandfather started a company that turned 125 years old last month still in business he does not own it he sold it in 2001 um, but they were called William Barnett and Son in, in uh, Rensselaer, New York, near Albany. And they uh, manufactured shoddy, which is basically like the runoffs of all the organic fibers. You had sisal, which creates toe. You got cotton. So he took all the remnants and the bad stuff that nobody wanted and turned it into something sellable that people could actually use. And today, Barnett looks very different but they're taking um recycled like polymers and turning them into fibers and they're one of their major clients is like um the one that makes all the carpets for cars and buses and airplanes and stuff so the idea of creating something from nothing and the idea of, of starting with like organic crap that turns into something beautiful was really inspiring to me so i wanted to honor my family so um i named it sisal and toe originally because i was very much like in this in the span of like oh it's a it's blank and blank. You know, there's all these like, uh, like like 1900s lawyers names of things coming out like bars and everything. But at a certain point I was like, all right, we're a creative collective. Like we'll class up a little bit. Um, but basically Sisal Creative started with me, um, nannying, doing pet portraits, teaching at local art centers. Um, and then a few restaurants were like, oh, you do art and you used to work at the natural history museum in New York. Like, oh, that's cool. Like, you want to make like a diorama? And I was like, yeah. So I made stuff for restaurants and I realized like hospitality is where it's at because they have budgets and they have a very specific brand and they have clientele and, you know, through solving problems with art, which your problem could be, it's sterile. It's, um, it doesn't have enough color. It's not got signage. It, uh, the space feels too big and cold. Um, there's nowhere to sit, you know, like that kind of stuff. Like taking the issues of the space that this that any company can occupy and adding to their viz ID and their brand ID and what defines them and why people want to stay there and why people want to Instagram and post there, you know, like it's kind of shallow, I guess, but you know, I, you just go where you're needed. I guess like the idea of making luxury art for companies never really crossed my mind, but it just kind of weaseled my way into it and then realized like it it is such a gift to be able to present beautiful things to the world like take the take the um the kind of eye-rolling corporate luxury art out of it and and you have these like bespoke works that people see and they're like wow that's really beautiful even though I'm in a doctor's office and I don't want to be here um <laughs> so for me that's my gift that's all I can really do I'm horrible at math I'm horrible at um I just do what I'm good at and I like it. And so it just turned into a company somehow. And um, I'm ex eternally grateful. Like, it's just the coolest. I like it. And I want to get on my elevator speech. <laughs> I like it. And I'm going to give you another chance to talk a little bit more about it. But now talk about because you, you said it in the email. So I want to I want to kind of 
talk about it because I feel like it's important and it's something that you created. Um, with Saiso Creative, you said your slogan unofficially, which I, I want to ask why it's unofficial, is creation, <laughs> preservation, and reappropriation. I want to ask you kind of what does that mean exactly to you and why is it unofficial? It's your company. You can make it official right here, right now. Oh, you know, it's unofficial because I can't really decide on a slogan because like mm. for a long time, it was fine fabrication because I like the way it sounds. I like the alliteration. I'm Becca Barnett. My son is Cassius Carmody. My ex-husband is Charles Carmody. You know, we like the alliteration in our family. Um, I think that aim to do every day is to make stuff that I'm really proud of, that people are really proud to display. And I want to emulate exactly what makes their brand or their um kind of dna like sing so for me that sometimes looks like making a 40 foot tall um sculpture out of wood dowels that are wrapped that celebrate uh you know sweetgrass baskets that honors a fifth generation sweetgrass basket maker in the area or like a giant metal skull that looks a lot like the two-dimensional logo that I was given to make into a 3D representation and it's an outdoor sculpture. And sometimes that looks like repairing somebody's grandfather's fish. And sometimes that looks like making a hundred cast dogwood flowers that are hand-painted with gold leaf on the back of them and then put into a very organized um, shape on the wall. It's like so random what we do. So it's really, really hard to just say we make stuff for people um, so the tagline doesn't really exist because it's not, there's not like a way to, you know, squish it into a couple words. But for me, like creation, preservation and reappropriation are the way that I think about art, at least the way I make it. So for me, like creation, if you go to the taxonomy, if you explain it through taxonomy, creation is like making a new piece of taxonomy, right? Or it's also reappropriating materials that already exist. Or it's also preserving materials that already exist. But then if you go through like an old, um, you know, like you get like a an old uh, beehive, you know, you could reappropriate that and turn it into something like a lamp. Mm -hmm. Or you could also preserve it so it stays in its state without decaying. Or you could also create a brand new beehive that isn't a beehive that looks exactly like a beehive and put it in a museum. And it'll last forever because it's made of materials that are totally, um, you know, not uh, going to disintegrate. So there's just so many ways to, for me to think about making things. And I think one thing that I had a light bulb moment for that and where that came from. When I um, Right after college, I worked at um, the Museum of Natural History in the preparator department. So I made uh, traveling exhibitions for shows and I was interning at first and then I worked there for a couple of years and I kind of didn't like New York so I had to leave but um what I loved was I would walk around and just kind of try to figure out how to make stuff that was on my list so it's like okay make a pomegranate look like it burst open so I get a fake pomegranate it looks like crap I have to like rough it up sculpt on it paint it so that it has texture because the ones you get from like a box store are kind of horrible I split it open. I have to find material that emulates the seeds. And then I have to figure out which epoxy is the best way to like coat each seed to make it look juicy. And then how do I make it look juicy as it's opening? And it's like different glues and different paints and different processes. And so it's like this combination of all of these different materials coming together to emulate something that should look real to the viewer. 
And I love the idea of kind of like fooling the viewer, not in like a crappy, sneaky way, but like just in a in a wow way or in a like they don't even have to think too hard about it way. But I'm really excited that I did it. So I think it's more just like my company. What is really unique about what we do is we're so engaged with our clients. We don't ever we're really, really small. So we don't ever pass anybody off. We don't ever not focus on you. You get the dedication, excitement, obsession, even like. I am just completely enthralled with all the projects I take on. And if I'm not, I say like respectfully, this is not for us. And I get to use all of this crazy knowledge that just keeps like randomly sneaking its way into my life. And like, I'm not the best artist in the world, but I just know a lot of materials and I have so much to learn. And, Mm -hmm. and I look up to so many people and I research and I read and I mess around and I fail miserably a lot. And I learn really well from the failure. Mm -hmm. So I'm totally off topic, but um, I think just like the idea of of making sure that whatever we make is specifically just things and like celebrates whoever it's for and I'm proud of it and they're proud of it. That is to me su- success. Like that's now what success looks like. It used to look different, but it's changed a lot for me, which is nice. <laughs> yeah, I love that. And I don't know exactly where you're, you're based. You talked about hurricane season. So Somewhere different than the Midwest for sure, but I assume South Carolina, (laughs) South Carolina. Yeah. So I do, I assume that do you expand outside of that area for, for your company? Do you, do you take on projects outside of the, yeah, yeah. We've done, uh, yeah, we've done work in Florida for, um, Native American tribe. Um, we've done work in the Czech Republic. Um, Mm -hmm. we've done work in California and, uh, New York and we ship places in Atlanta, we kind of go all over the place, really. It's wherever we're needed. And it's random because like people will just randomly find us and I'm not sure how. And and I'm like, what is happening? Yeah. <laughs> like I'm in a tiny town. What's happening? Where did you come from? Yeah, it's an honor, true. really. It's just like so I feel really know what kind of deal with the devil I made. I can't remember, <laughs> but um I'm not rolling in it or anything. Like I'm not saying it's working like amazingly financially but it's like exactly where i want to be growing it's it's i'm 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 exactly where i need to be it's it's a baby business still like 10 years is a long time but i have so much to learn and i am just so thrilled that i get to do what i love every day it's just the best i love it i love that that's 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 what we all kind of strive for to have that job that you don't hit snooze for 1500 times. So, well, I hit snooze a lot because I love to sleep, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's hard though. It, it is, it is really hard, but it's really, it's rewarding. And I don't have it all figured out, you know, yeah. and I'm not like a, I'm not like enlightened or anything. I, I don't yeah. have any, I don't have any like comparison to the people, my mentors and the people I look up to, but, uh, I just really enjoy my weird version of life. <laughs> I love it. And I want to kind of get to the show you were on. It's on yeah. NBC making it. Uh, I told you that I was going to not tell you how I saw the show uh, beforehand, but this is how I, I, I caught the show. So I, I hate to say it, but I did not watch it when it was on. I never even heard of the show when it was on. Yeah. I was um, going to say you and the other 10 people to watch the show. Like, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I had never heard of it. And it's kind of uh, a little bit of a callback to your uh, to your last name. You told me that it was uh, German. Actually, I caught it 
on a flight home from Germany, they it was loaded in the uh, in the or the back of the seat entertainment. So I watched on an eight hour flight. I watched like your entire season of making it. That's how I watched the show. Are you telling me right now that I'm planes, TVs? I'm telling you that Aer Lingus Ireland plane has your entire season for everyone to watch on their transatlantic flights. Ireland, not because I want to watch myself. That is okay. Like I don't really care about the fame. I hated being interviewed. Like I'm, I am kind hated of like being interviewed. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm kind of like a, um, like an extroverted introvert. Like I'll probably cry in the shower after this interview. But like I, the idea that anyone would like choose me to be on a show or even do a job for them, I still am like, why, how? Like I have imposter syndrome really bad. It. Is totally delightful that I'm on somebody's plane somewhere. And thank you for watching. I'm sorry that you went through all of that. <laughs> I, well, it was enjoyable. I, I, I liked it a lot. But Good, I'm glad. But those who have not been on the Aer Lingus flight or didn't catch it on NBC, tell people what making it was. So was is a good word. I'm pretty sure the show's canceled, but I like to think that after me, no, like after me and my friends are on there, like after that round of contestants, nobody else would do. Um, (laughs) I like it. I made some lifelong friends on there. I like literally have a text chain going with my three best friends from the show. And that to me was the most rewarding thing, but I have to tell them that, that we're on Aer Lingus. But um, uh, the show is essentially um, it's, it's, it's great British Bake Off, but you don't get to know the contestants as much. But it's like funny, lighthearted. It's a reality TV series. It's a competition. Somebody goes home every week. There's twists and turns. You have short, uh, you know, short um, challenges and longer challenges. Um, the episodes are like 30, 45 minutes. So there's not a lot. You know, they try to jam pack quite a bit in there. But we filmed it uh, for six weeks in L.A. And um, it came out two years ago i think it was like june of 2021 don't ask Um, me it came out last week for me i know well you know what's really cool i gotta say though i talk a lot about mental health on the show and Mm. um because it's really important to me especially as a creative because i think like as creatives we don't really get to talk about our depression and anxiety and imposter syndrome and all that stuff and we feel like you know to be any any type of creative whether you just like to kind of draw when you get home or you're a full-time artist or whatever like you feel hard you know you're an empathetic sensitive person that intakes a lot of things like color and sound and all this stuff so like I talk a lot about mental health on the show and we were recorded quite a bit um when we weren't filming talking about a lot of stuff that it didn't make it on the show but I talk a lot about being a mom and figuring out like when you're with your kid, like my light bulb moment was like, Oh, I'm with Cass. I need to be with Cass when I'm at studio. I'm like, I'm at studio instead of wishing I was at the other place. And you talk about depression and anxiety and stuff. And I get anyway, long story short, long story long. I get messages from random people sometimes that are just like my 13 year old daughter is really depressed and you inspired her to continue to keep making things and work through her depression. And like, I will literally sob when I get those messages. Like my goal was not, anything i had no goal for that show i was like this is fun and weird like i like a challenge let's go you know like but for me to get any messages like that is such a huge honor and it's so moving to me and sometimes i just doubt my path and my like place in the world and like why i do what i do and then when i get a message like you know i struggle a lot with anxiety i had postpartum depression 
and I, I stopped painting and I watched making it and I'm starting to paint again. Cause you like inspired me to work through that. And it's like, I'm, I'm sobbing over my phone and I worked really hard on the show, but I never thought I would be able to reach people. And that was the best like outcome other than getting great friends. So yeah, I mean, yeah, it was hard work. I kind of had Stockholm syndrome, but it was totally worth it. And it's a silly fun show that you can have on while you're doing your taxes or whatever. So, you know, check it out. It's uh, it's on Hulu. You can stream it on Hulu. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Well, I'm going to I'm going to challenge you for a second because I want you to tell us if somebody hasn't seen it what the show is about, what they're seeing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess if you're going to watch Making It, you should expect to see a lot of Nick Offerman and Amy Poehler joking around and making a bunch of puns about crafts and making. Nick Offerman is actually a woodworker himself, and Amy Poehler just loves crafting, but she's not, she'll even say, like, I'm not a good artist. I don't know how to make anything. Um, and then you have judges, Simon Doonan, who is just like an icon, who is an artist himself and has worked a lot with like visual displays and gosh, everything from fashion to to um, retail. And then uh, you have Dana Isom Johnson, who is um, essentially a curator for Etsy. She's kind of the style coordinator uh, for Etsy. And basically just every episode we have uh, like a short, um, you know, make this really fast thing, a challenge. It's everything is time. And then you have a longer one and then you're judged and there's a winner for the mini craft and the maxi craft. I forget what they're even called at this point. Like, I don't even, <laughs> anyway, I forgot the lingo, but um you know, somebody goes home and somebody wins. And um, it was really hard when people went home, but it's a fun, cute show. And, you know, you're, uh, you're basically like kind of rooting for people and also kind of checking out. And it's like, I don't know, it's easy to watch. It's fun for it's fun for the whole family. It's very PG. And that's what I liked about that. Because I mean, obviously, there's a lot of competition shows out there. I've talked to a lot of people from competition shows, but this one truly, it seems like everybody was hardcore rooting for each other and hardcore upset when others went home i mean other shows of course it's like oh man but it's like oh i didn't go home i'm glad for that so i I think that everyone here really did kind of bond and that was a kind of a a cool thing for sure um i want to ask you how did you how what's the process of of getting involved in something like this how did you do it did you like audition or or what's that look like i i actually got kind of pinged on Instagram Hmm. but it wasn't a it wasn't at all a guarantee it was more like hey we think you'd be a really good contestant would you audition and I don't know I like to get scared not like in a uh, a haunted house like you know way or like drive with my eyes closed kind of way but I make big moves like move to Rhode Island do art school move to New York do that you know like move to Charleston I don't have a job you know like just I like a thrill and I hadn't had one in a while, you know, go to tax free school. I didn't have one in a while. And I was like, this is crazy. And, and my husband at the time was like, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. Like I can handle uh cashless while we're gone and while you're gone. And I was like, I don't know if I'm going to be home in like one week or like six weeks. Like I have no idea. Cause you just don't know how long you'll be there. And um, you know, he held down the fort and I, I took a chance. I rolled the dice and the audition was like just a ton of zooms and making a ton of crafts and trying to do stuff from past seasons. Um, And you had to time yourself and and video yourself and talk about the materials you were using. So I guess they just wanted to make sure that you had the ability to explain the way you make things and um, that you were, you know, not uncomfortable in front of your own camera, at least as the fates have it. I was a contestant on making it season three. <laughs> you you were for sure. And you made it 
pretty far in it as well. I want you to tell us now, because there's so many different things you're, you know, you're doing, you have a little bit of leeway on, you know, how to, how to obviously express yourself with it, but doing so many different things. What was, what was one of the coolest things that you made, something that you're most proud of on the show? Oh, well, I think I'm potentially most proud of the first like a uh, mini challenge. Cause I, I won it, which was like a pinch me moment. Um, but I made a collapsible doll, like one of those push dolls, um, that, you know, is kind of rigid and beaded and, and, um, strung up. And then you, you push the base and it collapses and it comes back. And I called it collapsible Becca. And I talked about my anxiety and how like depression is always, um, changing and moving around. And it looks different, uh, every year of your life, every day of your life and month and, you know, just kind of like wanted to create a, our challenge, by the way, was the task was to create a self-portrait through a toy. So it could be any toy you wanted. And I wanted to talk about mental health. You know, I wanted to use this platform as a little like tiny mini soapbox to be like, hey, it's okay that you're not okay. Like I see you, like we see each other and, you know, not fix anything, but just like get it out there. And I was just really, really proud of it, whether I had one or not. I was proud that I got vulnerable and um the toy was really cute and um a lot of people email me asking for like blueprints for it and i would love to tell them how to make it but i handmade like all the beads so like (laughs) i don't really have like a kit but um i don't know just the idea of creating a self-portrait that that was like simple and playful and silly but also did really kind of come across as like you can always get back up again you know, like yeah. you can fall down, but you'll always get back up and um, things are always going to change. It's weather patterns. And I think I was most excited to make that. But I think the thing that was most frustrating for me was, um, you know, when we make a lot of large stuff at Sysel Creative, a lot of it will, you know, sketch, draw, do construction drawings for. And then we work closely with a company that does fabrication that has like a CNC machine. So we often uh, pass off a lot of our really large scale woodworking to them. And so when it came to making like, giant stuff where people had made like structures for theirs I fell short I I was trying so hard to think in the wheelhouse of like what can I make with my own two hands by myself and this a lot of time and then um you know then they would randomly give us a few helpers sometimes and I was like I didn't know I was gonna have helpers like so I didn't design or think of anything in the, in the time allotted to think about it that was bigger and I kind of I think that's my regret is just not thinking a little bit bigger no, I, I, that I, I, I like that, uh, like that first one as, as well. Um, so did you, all these things you make, did you get to keep it? Do you, did you get to keep collapsible Becca or did everything stay with the show? I don't know where she is. Um, they gave us a few things back. Anything that one had to stay in archives. Cause NBC has everything like sealed up in some huge, like a uh, vault. Uh, so anything that won a badge had to stay. So that one actually had to stay. Um, the tufted uh, rug portrait that I made of my ex-husband and my kid, um, they actually gave it to me. <laughs> but I love tufting. It's so fun. I love learning a new tool, a new skill, a new material to work with. And I love like teaching myself how to make something I've never made. So that show was really fun for me, um, as long as the pressure was a little managed, but it wasn't very managed all the time. <laughs> yeah. And I was going to ask you, you know, what what part of the show maybe challenged you the most? And you may have, you may have answered it. Is yeah. it that, that you had to, you know, create these big things that you, you just 
weren't prepared for? Was it maybe the <laughs> the pressure? What what was it that uh, that I guess was the most challenging for you? I think um, the thing that I learned really fast. It was in the second episode. We had to make um, twelve cookies. Uh, and we had to disguise the cookies to become like, they obviously were still cookies, but we had to make them like unrecognizable in terms of their brand or their style. And we had to change them. So I turned a bunch of different stuff into beetles and made like a picnic blanket. And I found myself like I have, I have ADD, which I hadn't been diagnosed with at the time, nor was I medicated for at the time. And I have a little OCD that kind of, uh, likes to piggyback off that. And um, I have this habit, uh, especially in my studio, I like to think and make in a very, like, it doesn't have to be immaculate, but it just has to be like organized. And I was spending a lot of my timed challenges, like moving things around and cleaning things and lining things up. And I wasted a lot of time. And I realized like time management, while I'm pretty good at it in terms of like the business world of like grand scheme of things, like I... I'm really good at scheduling, but like having three hours to make something and using essentially 20, even 20, 30 minutes of that just to line things up to clean the area so you can think better was like a huge mistake. So I learned that really quickly. And then my other challenge was just like, um, like kind of like I said, like not really thinking outside the box in terms of like, okay, when I make things for myself and it's crafty, it's usually pretty small and manageable. And it's like, it's kind of organic and stuff. And and when it came to like the challenge where I left, which was uh, the semifinals, um, you know, everyone had these huge like structures that they had built. And I was like, oh my God, like I could have made a structure. Like, you know, I didn't even know that was like a possibility that I could have like chosen to do. So yeah, I think my challenge was just like kind of thinking big and then thinking um, uh, don't clean so much. Yeah, I, I get that. I want you to, you know, you talked about, the host of the shows was Amy yeah. Poehler and Nick Offerman. Big names. Most shows don't get hosts like that. So that makes it even more interesting that, you know, it wasn't more successful just from the, the name draws there. But talk about having them on the show. Now, with that said, I have talked to, you know, people from a lot of different shows with, you know, big hosts. And I don't know exactly what their role is with you guys. I mean, there's a lot of shows that it's simply just, when the camera's on, hey, hey, and then everything, then they're gone in the dressing room. So I don't know what that looked like. So I heard that so, so the winner of season um, two, uh, Justine Silva, was a producer and was there when we were making season three. And so she was explaining things like we got to go to dinner with them, like we got to hang out with them and chat and, you know, whatever. And um because it was the middle of it was the beginning of it wasn't the beginning oh. it was a uh, it was like uh, the fall of 2020 when we shot and there weren't vaccines yet and if there were we were too young to get them and um we had to get tested every other day and we had to wear a shield and a mask mm. at all times um except for when we were getting our our hair or our makeup touched up and we it would literally be like action and you could take your mask and your shield off so we didn't get to really talk to them that much. And when we were with them, there's like, you know, obviously the six foot rule and all that stuff, but um, they did try to, you know, make connections with, or not, they did try, like they did make connections with us. Like, and Nick Offerman is so funny. Um, He's like, of course, Amy's amazing. And she's working so hard. She is a business woman. Like she was not rude, but she would take calls right after cut. Like she was writing emails. She was like answering stuff. She was like, talking about her kids on the phone like just like powerhouse but like so kind um and nick offerman's funny as shit and he would come around and one time he walked 
past my pace and he looked at me and he just stared at me like he was thinking really, really hard. And he goes, that's really perfect and beautiful, except for one thing. And then he walked away and I was like, what just happened? (laughs) I was so confused, but he was really sweet. I just wish we had had a little more time with them, but they are just as nice as you think they're going to be. And they were so sincere and so pleased to be there and dedicated to the show. And I don't know. They're awesome. They're great people. Well, I I like to hear that. So now to kind of tie the the two things together, being on the show and then Saiso Creative, um, do you think that being on the show has helped your your business? Obviously, it helped you get to get the opportunity of being on this this show because I wouldn't have really known. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> then. But do you think that it's helped your your business as a whole or or no? Correlation zero. Mm. In terms of like jobs, zero. Okay. But the benefits of taking that risk have been like they just keep showing up like this podcast, um, the notes I get on Instagram, um, the emails sometimes that I will receive. And then, um, just like, you know, people just even just taking an interest in anything that I do. I mean, I have not gotten a paid job from the show, but I made some lifelong friends. I learned so much about myself and it did teach me to think a little differently about the way I make. And yeah, I say it benefits Sisal Creative in the sense that like I'm better for having done that show. Absolutely worth it. I do it again in a heartbeat. I sometimes I really miss it because it was fun. So, I mean, obviously the sky's the limit, and this kind of feels like a a job interview question. But what uh, I mean, what what do you hope the future holds when it comes to to things that you're doing? What 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 maybe that you haven't done? Do you you hope that you're going to be able to do at some point? That's a hard one for me um, because I've been, I'm a kind of a control freak and I've been like actively really trying not to worry too much about the future, but still kind of obviously like planning for it, hopefully. But um, I just spent my whole life like so stressed about what success looks like and where I would be in X years and, and, and how to get to certain levels of achievement. And, you know, that looks different for everyone, like financial stability, like um, job, like uh, work relationships, like blah, blah, blah. And I don't have it figured out by any means, but I'm, I feel like where I'm, I'm where I'm supposed to be. And I'm excited to see where it goes. And I don't know what it looks like. And there are days where I'm like, I don't know if running a business is for me. And I kind of sometimes think about like, maybe I could just be a really, really great, like CEO and sell this stuff to somebody that, uh, you know, wants to run it for me. (laughs) Like, but, um, As long as I'm making beautiful things for people that really, really want to work with me, I don't really care what it looks like. And I don't mean to sound like a, like a woo woo or like, come join my cult of like, who cares? I just, I just don't really care as long as like everyone's, everyone I'm working with is good and taken care of and happy. And as long as I'm making cool stuff and as long as I'm, you know, making sure my kid is good and like my animals are good. Like I don't, really know what it looks like for me. Um, I want to teach myself more computer programs. I taught myself Illustrator in the last couple of weeks and I was like, I write. <laughs> so more learning, more, more learning and then um, less stress and a good work-life balance. And then I don't care with the rest. The rest is like, eh, I'll figure yeah. it out. <laughs> more making sure Pagoda and Gus are, are happy. 
Oh my God. I just give them like this, this nice food that keeps them healthy and just, I, yeah. I want them to be happy, but you know, sometimes I'm like turning the fan on and opening the windows and I'm like, you guys, I don't know if you're really paying, if you're really carrying your weight around here, you know, like you're not paying rent and you sigh, like you have a boss that hates you. Like, I don't really like, <laughs> I don't really know what's going on, but no, they're great. Um, no, I just want, I just want, um, to make sure that my decisions like honor my, um, my inner like goals, I guess you just kind of have to check with yourself. Sometimes I've made a lot of decisions and I'm like, Oh, that was for somebody else. Mm. You know that, or, or even that was for society. I don't know why I did that. And then I go like, Oh, is it for me? And like, not in a, a selfish way, but you have to honor your own like gut. And I didn't do that for a long time. And it feels good to like start trying to do that now. I don't have it figured out, but I'm trying. <laughs> yeah, I, I love it. I want you to tell us now and in, in wrapping things up. So people, we already know if they want to check out making it the season you are on season three, go check out Hulu. That's where you're going to find it. But how are they going to find Becca Barnett? How are they going to find Sisal Creative? Kind of shout those things out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm on Instagram at Becca Barnett. It's B-A-R-N-E-T. I'm Becca with two C's. Um, and Sisal Creative is at S-I-S-A-L, like a Sisal rug, Sisal Creative. Um, SisalCreative.com, uh, making it season three. Um and uh we're just kind of like peppered all over charleston in different weird spots so if you ever visit charleston and you want to like see the studio i don't want a whole slew of humans to come to me but um our contact is on the website um uh we don't really sell like small one-offs or or um, mount people's deers uh, as a you know disclaimer <laughs> but um I, I love meeting people that are excited my favorite thing ever is talking to people that are like jazzed about what they do like no matter what it is even if I don't understand it, if they're like really into it, I'm really into it. And, um, you know, I just, I never want to stop learning and meeting people. So like, you know, that's kind of just any connection there is good. So like, you know, follow, follow me on Instagram, like say, Hey, talk to me about mental health. I see you. <laughs> I um, but yeah, that's pretty much it. I don't have anything like major coming up that's worth like shouting out at the moment but um yeah we're just we're just making good work putting our heads down and and living our best lives over here <laughs> i love it that's a good way to end it living our best lives i really appreciate your time <laughs> thank you so much for having me it's so fun to talk and just meet you and i i love your podcast i listened to a lot of it last week and it's just like it's so great to like you're doing the same thing you're literally just talking to people that are obsessed with what they do and i think that's so fun so that is Becca Barnett. Really appreciated her time. Go follow her on Instagram. Go check out Sisal Creative. Go check her out in uh, in South Carolina. Don't uh, don't you know parade in there in mass. But she's just an awesome person. Really inspiring person. I know she would love uh, for you to follow on Instagram. If this is the first time listening to this podcast, go check us out on Instagram, Not Enough Podcast. Go give a five-star review on Apple and on Spotify. Appreciate that very much. Leave a written review on Apple. Even more amazing. If you do nothing else, catch us next week. Another amazing guest next week. Uh, take it away, Chris. This has been Not In A Huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think or hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.